Hey everyone, producer Dave here. Uh, check out our other podcasts. We have The Plex, our flagship show, which is a weekly news roundup. We have Local Love, which is interviews with local Bay Area bands. Uh, speaking of local, we also have Down Ballot, which is our Bay Area local news podcast. And we have How the Tech Are You, which is obviously a tech podcast. Enjoy the show. All of a sudden, we can't talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore. <laughs> I'm white, and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got everything I need I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee Just like my straight white male dad did to me a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt but to me that doesn't matter cause my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly A penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do this show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific, right here on Twitch, twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Also simulcasting some other places, but don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> we'll start talking about those if people start watching in those other places. <clears throat> you can support this project at echoplexmedia.com. Uh, just click the support tab. Uh, HK will be joining us for Red Light tonight. I just did not know if our uh, connection was going to be reliable and um, if I'm having people drop during the during the stream, it's real bad actually for the podcast because it shows up on Spotify and that's weird. So <clears throat> again, HK will be joining us during Red Light from his new spot, no less. So we'll see how that looks. He uh, he says that he's uh, slowly but surely getting set up. So that's not what we're here to talk about, though. And you're going to be real mad when you see what we are here to talk about. We're here to talk about, I call him uh, Richard uh, Hanna-Barbera. It's Richard Hanania. <clears throat> He's being interviewed by someone I've never heard of named Keith Woods. Um, and we'll kind of see how this goes. This is called The Origins of Woke. So I'm sure it's going to be, um, you know, educational and for all. And um, no, no bias, no bigotry, nothing like that. It'll, it'll be fantastic. Just a chill episode of The Intellectual Dollar Tree.
So this is on YouTube right now? Mm-hmm. And we are live. Uh, I'm here with Richard Hanania. He's, a, I guess you could say, a, a rising star in, in, uh, in politics and in the woke movement. I'm not sure you'd identify yourself as, as a conservative, but a, a rising star in, in uh, Nietzschean liberalism. Um, and he has your book out. Just George. invented yesterday, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the you're the top Nietzschean liberal after after inventing it. So, um, but yeah, he has a new book, "The Origins of Woke." Uh, very interesting book. Very interesting topic, and it's a topic that hasn't been covered much, actually, Richard. In terms of, I mean, you can just explain the the basic thesis of it. But this idea of of the relationship between civil rights mm -hmm. law and wokeness. The first time I heard about this was Christopher Caldwell's Age of Entitlement, which I know you you referenced in the book as well. Um, and then you had an interesting Substack piece on the same topic a couple of years ago. Is that kind of what sparked your interest in this or, or what sent you in the direction of, of looking at civil rights law? Yeah, so I've been interested in it. Mm -hmm. So liberals have been making fun of me on the Internet for a very, very long time, and I got mad at them much longer than that i was um i was i was an author for many white supremacist publications under a pseudonym uh in law school so i knew about disparate impact i know all these other things i mean i think i probably heard of it from steve sailor and other conservatives way back in the steve day steve sailor and other leo good anybody listen like <laughs> i'm i'm not sure that that's how i'd describe steve sailor um, the Caldwell book, you know, doesn't really go into sort of the details of the law, it just says, you know, civil rights is bad. Um, the, uh, you know, that we, you know, with, like, it's just basically civil rights are bad, civil rights uh, act happened, and then like, our freedoms were taken away. And like, you know, we, we led to, you know, this crazy situation we're in today. Uh, so I think it really, you know, I think there, I started to look into it. And there was really like, just a case for, you know, not just disparate impact, not just one or two things, but like the entire structure of like how we think about like, uh, you know, male female relations in the workplace, how we think about how we classify race in this in this country. Um, oh, this is yeah. this is this is going to be not great. I bet his he's like male. He probably wants to go back to the Mad Men days. He probably thinks the the guys in the in Mad Men were like the heroes, and that they were there to like they're like look at how cool these guys are. You know, like how like corporate America governs itself, right? Like the uh, the grievance procedures when someone complains about something. It really all so much of it is traced to like different areas of law. I think that like you know this is a broader theory. I think I think it's like it shows sort of how government power, you know, has downstream effects on the culture. That people don't think about. People don't think about uh, necessarily the most important thing. People look at surface level stuff, right? Or they look at philosophers or, or whatever, uh, you know, the, but like the minutia of sort of the law and just how it operates on institutions. It's not known as well. Um, I mean, so I took, so I took this in the area of wokeness where I think in some cases you can clearly show the connection between law and, you know, what happened. Um, and basically the connection between law and what happened. <laughs> This is going to be, uh, this is, uh, I, I fucking, I hate this guy like the most. I have like probably an irrational hatred for this guy. So just kind of keep that in mind when you're listening. To wokeness, which, you know, obviously your audience and many other people are interested in today. So can you explain just basically for people that haven't read this book yet, what is the mechanism by which uh, civil rights law, which I guess people would associate with, uh, anti-discrimination and like specifically when it was passed, uh, you know, discrimination against black people. How does that translate to current day, you know, SJWs, uh, the excesses of wokeism? What's like the mechanism there? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can we like provide? Is there like a? Can I provide a link in the chat for the book for people who want to buy it? Since this is this is. All uh, yeah, standard. I'll tell my moderators. Actually, I have a link in the description. So if the moderators can post that as as we're talking, that we hope. Okay, great. Yes, because I mean the book is going to provide. It's not a. It's not a very long book, but it's very dense. It has a lot of mm -hmm. uh, historical information um, that will be very surprising and interesting to people. So yeah, there are a lot of you know there are a lot of these mechanisms. Uh, I, I focus on a handful. So there's disparate impact, right? You think people think it's a new idea that if you know there's a standardized test and one group does better than the other uh you know the government comes after you no that's that's been the law of the land since 1971 so you have so the government doesn't come after you if one group does better than another on a standardized test that's incorrect the the, the thing here is that like <clears throat> nobody just uses standardized tests to decide whether to hire someone well most a lot of companies don't even really use a standardized test when they decide whether to hire people and then uh, universities don't just use uh, standardized tests like the SAT or the ACT when they uh, decide on admissions. They use other factors. And what he doesn't, <clears throat> he probably doesn't like that they're using other factors. You have corporations always thinking about, are we hiring, you know, are, are we doing anything that might fire too many black people or not promote them in large enough numbers? Same thing with women. Uh, you have affirmative action through government contracting, which is government just said everyone who does any kind of, you know, large scale contracting with government there. Uh, they have to have an affirmative action program and their subcontractors have to have an affirmative action program. This is like a quarter uh, of the private sector work workforce. So every large corporation has to have a private, has to have a, um, has to have an affirmative action program just to, you know, e either get government contracts or be eligible for government contracts, right? Uh, they might want to be eligible at a certain date. Um, and then you have harassment law, which is the idea that like, if, you know, if you make women or minorities uncomfortable, you know, very subjective sort of, uh, standard, uh, oh, dear, <laughs> it's like, now you have harassment law, which is just when people are uncomfortable at work. It's actually uh, on them. If they're uncomfortable at work, you know, women and minorities always being uncomfortable at work, but silly women and minorities in your company can be forced to do different things it can be forced to you know reform its hiring practices in addition to paying out a lot of money to people so corporations are very uh sensitive about you know uh being on race and gender issues um and then you have you know title nine which is just like this crazy sort of radical feminist uh you know it's been interpreted this way this sort of like radical feminist interpretation of like male female relations and like what the government should be doing so it's like you know destroyed basically male sports uh made all these fake female sports uh, wait I, I thought they cared about female sports now i'm confused what do you mean fake female sports what do you mean fake what do you like women's basketball or they just not have a basketball <laughs> women's track and field nah they're not really running and the hurdles they're not even hurdles see that shot put that don't exist they ain't throwing nothing uh, you know, got government through the, you know, through the university system, um, you know, into the field of like regulating, like dating and relationships, just like they did in the private sector, you know, through civil rights law, through, uh, you know, they, they, we had these uh, zero tolerance policies at HR that derived. <clears throat> yeah, some HR departments, they have fraternization policies where you're, you, you can date like laterally within the organization or whatever, but you can't, you're not, your boss isn't supposed to ask you out. Yeah. I think there's that's pretty reasonable from uh you know from the law ultimately from civil rights law and the way it's been interpreted uh so these are just these are like i think the four main mechanisms there's a lot i mean there's a lot more the government is huge it does all kinds of things uh, but these are the four i really focus on as sort of driving a lot of the cultural changes we see
Now, you do have a definition of wokeness, because some people in the chat are saying what is woke, and you basically break it down to three kind of core uh, principles. It's the belief that disparities equal discrimination. Uh, if there's any inequalities uh, in anything, it has to be because there's some kind of unseen discrimination, um, a belief in speech restrictions to correct this, and like a result in HR bureaucracy. Um, when I read that first, that seems like a very kind of narrow, like very specific definition, because mm. I mean, when we think of, of people that are woke, uh, I guess it's kind of a broader, like it's a more sort of um, philosophical perspective, right? And it, it's kind of this belief that any, uh, you know, judging anyone on the basis of something they didn't choose is is like the ultimate evil, right? Um, and in that sense, it's, it's kind of like a liberal pluralist precept, right? But you know, that seems like quite a narrow definition. Does that account for these people that are driving wokeism, that are coming out of the universities, that have this like almost religious zeal about about you know liberating people from discrimination? Religious yeah. zeal about liberating people. I mean, you just told on yourselves, friendo. I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think it's like hard to get too philosophical because if you say, well, anything that people, it's bad to judge people on anything they can't control. That's really not it because they care about very specific things, right? If you say, oh, people born in this state are sort of screwed up more than people born in this state, or people who are like, you know, even no, no, actually, that's bigotry. Uh, getting onto Twitch and uh, meeting uh, people from the South. And from like Appalachia and uh, whatnot actually disabused me of some of those, um, what I would say, notions that I used to have about uh, people from those areas that I were in fact bigoted notions. So, yeah, actually that's bigotry. The direct racial comparisons, if you say something bad about whites or something bad about men, uh, there's no, you know, you know, there's no idea that that's the worst thing in the world, right? So it's very, very specific. I think you have to uh, say that they care about uh, disparities between whites and non-whites, whites doing better, and men doing better than uh, women. And it is, you know, it is narrow because I think, like, you can define it. I see, like, politicians talking about global warming, like, worrying about global warming is woke, or, like, COVID vaccines are woke. And that's just, you're getting too far from the definition. You're just... Well, no, those are just things that he thinks are real. So he's like, well, I'm not going to include that in this thing I think is bad. <laughs> definition of woke is like anything having to do with like um, group disparities and the way it's talked about that annoys him that's his definition of woke let's not get this twisted sort of talking about anything that sort of any liberal does and it can't be that right we, i think we we all know it focuses specifically on race and sex uh i think we all know it has something to do with bureaucracy and something to do with uh restrictions on speech i mean i think that's that's clear uh so yeah i mean i like my definition i think it i think it covers what most so people... when he means he so in this context when he says restrictions on speech he's talking about <clears throat> i mostly in, in the workplace and yeah actually did you know that if you go work somewhere, you can't just say whatever you think and then just expect to keep your job if everything you say that you think just pisses everyone off. It creates a hostile work environment for everyone else and for you. Talk about when they mean woke. Not the you know, it's it's not like too broad. It actually covers it. It doesn't. It's not like oh, we're you, we have some neutral definition where like we also care about anti-woke racism. You know, we all, we obviously don't. Um, and then it's not some broad definition where you know it's so broad that it covers everything. So I've had 
conversations with people about this. Um, you can be bigoted against white people. You can be bigoted against anybody, but racism is a structure. And here in the United States, the structure tends not to uh, disfavor white people. Yeah, well, I think it's good that maybe unlike other definitions that are very vague, uh, you know, you sorry, is our host attempting to sound like Elon Musk? I feel like the host is attempting to talk like Elon Musk. Specifically, the kinds of, of policies that it's focused on and that it leads to. Now, you say in the book at one point, you say at its root, the original push for quotas was based on sympathy for the situation of African-Americans as they began to advocate for equal rights. Uh, white guilt over their plight and a desire to make things better and you do kind of present the offshoots of of civil rights law into wokeism as as kind of a you know an unexpected downstream effect um is that maybe overlooking the you know the the kind of disparity and and what the where the elites were in terms of their wokeism at the time versus the general population um you know there was kind of a a geopolitical element as well with the cold war where the soviet union is is portraying like the the plight of blacks in america um do you feel like there's there's an element of it there as well with with the disparity of the elites yeah i mean obviously the elites were far to the left of the public and you see this and like that's why you got a lot of these laws and uh court decisions in the first place the elites were sort of they you know they were out of their minds uh in the 1960s and 70s on school busing and a lot of these uh whoa, whoa, school busing they were out of their minds they were like well we got to integrate the schools and uh if the neighborhoods are segregated uh we got to bus people into different neighborhoods to desegregate the schools they were out of their fucking minds everybody Uh, court decisions. I mean, they were just really, really out there. And you know, the, I don't buy. I don't. I don't buy the Soviet Union thing. I mean, I think that's like something liberals want. Well, no, one of the the Soviet Union did actually uh, use racial uh, animus in the United States in their propaganda. Um, I don't. I don't know if they cared or not, but they were right. But one of the big ones they used actually was the men, the battle battle of the sexes, as you would call it, men and women, because in the Soviet Union, well before women had, you know, uh, cultural equality here, they had cultural equality in the Soviet Union. Um, Soviet Union wasn't perfect. I mean, they were fucking was a totalitarian state, but, you know, men and women were equal under that totalitarian state. That was a big point of propaganda for the Soviet Union. Obviously, there was still misogyny and whatnot, but there they were like way ahead of us on way ahead of the United States on um, just equal rights for men and women in in work and um, just and economics, economic power to the extent that you could have economic power as an individual in the Soviet Union. Um, and then they sort of used an excuse. Oh, we've got to be friends with you know the rest of the world. Like I don't, you know, I, I just think that like well, that's a good idea. Yeah. Oh, they sort of used the excuse that we should, that we should probably not have everybody else in the world hate us. That was just an excuse. It's not good policy to have everybody in the world not hate your country. Just an excuse. Just an excuse to go woke. The elites were sort of going like they were anti sort of uh, discrimination. They were anti Jim Crow. Um, already, and that was sort of like a convenient excuse. Um, but you're right; like there has been, this has been an elite. The rest life. of the world doesn't like how racist we are. <laughs> so that was a convenient excuse to try to do things. Some of which were good, some of which were bad, some of which were well-intentioned and misguided. It wasn't all perfect, right? But um, but it was actually all just an excuse. <laughs> they're laughing at us. 
project. Um, and it still is. I mean, it's still elites are more into this stuff than the masses are. Um, and yeah, that's the way it's always been. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the central part of your book is, is your focus on very specific policies, specific laws. Um, and, you know, with that, you're actually able to present solutions for how this could be changed. And I guess I think that's what kind of separates this from Caldwell's book more is you actually get into like, well, what's a way forward if civil rights law is the problem? Which is it wasn't really in Caldwell's book. Like it was a it was yeah. a more basic presentation, but you kind of get into the the nuts and bolts. But w- one thing you said is is um, and you kind of alluded to it there. You do you don't put as much stock in these kinds of idealist explanations, or you know, focusing on on ideas of like whatever the Frankfurt School or or uh, whatever f- uh, philosophers are influencing academia. Um, but I mean, you know, you have the you have this kind of social revolution in the '60s, and I mean, a, 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 surely a big part of it is just that people are coming of age that were in that university system post-war. And uh, you know, a lot of scholars have talked about this shift in in liberalism that happened, especially in the U.S. and in, in the 1930s, 40s. Where you have uh, an influx of emigre intellectuals, and they, they tended to why push. why in the 30s and 40s do you suppose uh, intellectuals might have? Uh some intellectuals from certain parts of the world. Why, why do you suppose they might have thought the United States might be a good place to go to? I wonder. When they say intellectuals, he also mentioned the Frankfurt School. I mean, we know what he's talking about, right? We know what he's talking about. Liberalism in a more kind of anti-totalitarian direction, um, more of a focus on on like the open society. It's kind of a social engineering built in, built into that. Do you, you think that's overstated? Um, the effect that that had through the university system and kind of generating radicals? Yeah, I mean, I think that like you need both the ideology and you need the law. <laughs> without the law, without the law, the radicals can just, you know, be in their little sandbox and they can be playing and they can't really do a lot to the rest of us. Um, the civil rights law is sort of like a force, uh, you know, it's a for- force multiplier for them. Like, you know, they want to sue, you know, they want some corporation to become woke or adopt some HR program. Uh, civil rights is sort of the vector through which they Does do. they even know what HR does? I like turned down HR jobs because I didn't want them in the past. Um, you know, HR has been a big a medium to big organization. They also handle payroll. They handle all the paperwork you have to do when you're hired. They uh, handle your dismissal. If you are fired, they're not just there to like, they're not, it's just not like the Festivus airing of grievances year round in the HR department. And that's sort of how it's uh, going to be described here, I think. This, it's like data on you're not hiring enough blacks, you know, we're going to shame you in the media, the government's going to come after you, and then you have to bring in these HR people and these, you know, critical race theorists. What? You have to bring in HR people and critical race theorists? Okay, again, HR is literally a, a larger organization. It's, it's, the, it's the department that interfaces with the other employees. It has to be there. Before it was called HR or whatever, there, was, there were people whose job that was in big organizations. There has to be people whose job it is to interface with the fucking workforce in a large organization. How else do you interface with the workforce? sort of like i think you're talking i think you're probably getting at the frankfurt school and marcuse and all these uh types and you know this stuff like the, the way it ended up was like a lot like stupider 
you know, a lot less sophisticated than what they were calling for. I mean, I think that like, you know, if you would have showed them this, they would have said, you know, they were, you know, they were real socialists. They wanted like government to like, you know, uh, you know, really do a lot to address inequality and, um, you know, to really be regulating, you know, things and they were against capitalism and all this. And, what? you know, uh, woke is not like that. Woke is sort of like a tax on uh, the capitalist system. Right, it's like a tribute it pays to like these grifters like Ibram Kendi, uh, but and then like you know it hires you know a spoil system. It has like put some blacks on the board, put some women here, women there. It changes <laughs> just like fucking sprinkle it, sprinkle the blacks and the women on. Like you might put a little bit of cilantro on top of your fucking uh, tacos, you know, sort of like that. It's not that fucking. First of all, yeah, it's it's illegal to discriminate against people, but there there are also like HK's talked about this a lot that there are um, there are a lot of studies that show that actually when you have a, a workforce that uh, more closely resembles the society in which the company exists, that the company tends to do better. Like marketing companies have known this forever. The culture, so like we don't offend uh, any of these groups, uh, but then at the same time. Um, you know, it doesn't really challenge or overthrow the system, you know, quite the opposite. Uh, so why would, why would, why would, wait, what, but why would hiring people more different, like diverse, why would hiring diverse people even like, why would that overthrow the system? Why would that even be the goal? I thought, uh, hiring like ostensibly the idea of having a diverse workforce is that your company or organization will operate better within the system that already exists because the people there more closely resemble the people in the, the broader system i mean i think that like it's they didn't really get what they wanted if you're going to take these uh philosophers seriously um i think we what we got was basically what the law required but with like the influence of these ideas where they could have an influence right but if you were to take a so if I, if I was to give a specific example, not the Frankfurt School, but we'll say um, like Boazian anthropology was something that became popular in the 20s yeah. and 30s. Um, and then after the Second World War, you have like a UNESCO statement on race that kind of brings yeah. all of these cultural anthropologists together um, and, you know, promotes ideas that, you know, would be considered uh, even some of these people would be woke even by today's standard. Um, and that statement on race, which is kind of an assertion of, of like cultural determinism, that was later cited in, in Brown versus Board of Education to do away with, with segregation of public schools. So isn't that like that's a case where you have elites that are kind of woke, um, you know, it's been spread on a kind of international level. Uh, and that's something that happened just in the in the mid 1940s. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, these Bozia, yeah, the Bozian anthropology and all that stuff. Yeah. Denial of, uh, you know, the reality of race, denial of heredity more generally. Um, you're right. You know, there was a very interesting historical period in the early 1990s um, where this stuff became acceptable to talk about. So like the bell curve, go back and look up the New York Times review of the bell curve. It was very positive. I mean, it was very positive. It's really incredible. Well, that's because the New York Times was wrong. <laughs> the bell curve got panned like really badly from the jump. And it wasn't just that, like, the prescriptions in it were kind of bigoted. It was like that the data sets were dumb. And some of it was contradictory. To imagine today. Um, and, like, intellectuals were taking it seriously. The New Republic, uh, uh, I think, excerpt. Uh, real uh, quick, uh, Sean, you know, Skullhead Sean on uh, YouTube did a fucking very long, very good video about the bell curve. And he 
looked into the data sets that were being used and some of the sample sizes for some of the locations of people were like under 40 people under Andrew Sullivan. Uh, so I think that, it, you know, there was this time where like these things were at least talked about and like could be taken seriously. Um, and so like sort of, you know, you could say like free speech sort of was winning. I mean, like good arguments were beating bad arguments. Um, what also happened in the 1990s, and you know, I haven't written about this or thought about this much, but it's sort of the timing makes sense, is that uh, this is when the civil rights, uh, I talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which, you know, there's details are in the book, it expanded, it expanded, um, it made like punitive damages, it made it much more expensive to be racist or sexist, especially sexual harassment, that you know, became much easier to sue for sexual harassment, that goes up. So you have like the culture going in one direction, and the law going in the other direction. And eventually, like, the law wins because the culture sort of shifts, but the, you know, the legal regime stays and like the, you know, the new people you hire and like the legal incentives, they remain. Right. Um, and so you're right. You can point to these ideas and they're very, uh, you know, they're very bad. Um, they were, they were pushed back on. There was like a, a period of time where like Richard Hernstein was writing in the Atlantic. I mean, this was, this oh, Hernstein was the, the, the co co-author of the bell curve. I mean, now it's just terrible. Now it's just lies on top of lies on top of lies, especially the last, you know, uh, 15 years or so. It's gotten really, really bad. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I mean, these these things matter. These things matter. Uh, you know, if it wasn't uh, if it wasn't Bosian anthropology, you know, it would have been some other some other nonsense. I, I just think that, like, you know, there there's just like this denial. It's like of just dismissing That's an all- entire field of uh, inquiry because he doesn't like what they have to say. <laughs> I'm like, fuck math. I don't like what they have to say always been there right communism is the denial of reality that uh you know there's like smarter people and dumber people overall right and then like this impulse like went to you know race uh, right and it's often the same people with the same ideas um and yeah i mean you're you're right i, I don't even I like this idea of smart people and dumb people i think people i mean uh, barring like um like cognitive um problem people who have got cognitive issues barring cognitive issues i think people are just generally good at different things there are people who are you know uh, able to um, maybe solve new problems more quickly than other people but it depends on what kind of new problem anthropology i actually do think it was uh i think it was like uh, i think like it became the sophisticated view that like race doesn't matter i think it was like earlier i mean i think it was you know i think it was pretty early um you know even like you know, segregationists and stuff, you know, they would talk about, oh, uh, you know, when the, you know, uh, like, it's just, you know, about time, it's just about educating blacks, and it's going to be exactly the same. And they were even like putting, you know, saying it's going to be a long time period. So this this stuff had broad acceptance, I think, just because of sort of, uh, uh, you know, people just, they want to say things that sound nice. And it was one of those things. Yeah. Now, another thing you cover in the book is how this led to the swelling of, of HR departments. Uh, and that definitely seems like something that's, uh, well, HR departments have gotten bigger as corporations have gotten bigger and had more employees. You need bigger HR departments as you have more employees. Kind of unique to America. I don't think you get such, you get these massive HR departments as much in, in companies in Europe. Um, you covered that a lot. Well, Europe's so- just the structure is different the structure is different in Europe. For example, in most European countries, unions have a lot more power than here in the United States on this topic as well so how, how did like human resources become this army of people that enforced uh, the latest trends in, in wokeism 
Yeah. So HR, I have a couple graphs in the book that show the rise of HR. It just goes like this after, you know, the civil rights, uh, civil rights laws become what they are. Um, and you're right. I mean, the corporate corporations and managers and CEOs, they're only, they're mostly focused on, uh, they're mostly focused on making money. They're focused on the, uh, direct task in front of them. Um, and they, uh, and, you know, and they, they don't know like exactly what the law says, you know, it's all very complicated. So you get lawyers and you get HR specialists who are sort of there to interpret the law and tell them what they want to hear. Now, the HR people, like they have their own interests, right? They want to expand their own empire. They want to have power and hire more people like themselves often. Um, and, you know, and like also it becomes like a thing where like every corporation is like trying to protect itself and looking at whatever, what other corporations are doing. And they have to sort of, they have to do at least as much as the next guy. Um, and so you do get, I mean, you do get the rise of HR, you get HR. This is, that's, or uh, companies that are of a similar size and have like a similar kind of workforce might have a similar type of HR department. They're not like, I don't think that's like keeping up with the Joneses where the Joneses bought a new Mercedes. So you got to buy the fucking, you got to buy the Beamer. I don't think it's like that. I think it's just, a. it's just that they're going to be similar if the companies are similar size and do a similar thing and have a similar type of workforce more intrusive and it's like it's not like you know they're like an army ready to be activated when so like when george floyd happened um you know like hr like they're everywhere they're doing all kinds of crazy things they're telling them you know, no 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 he's wrong that's the fucking marketing departments of these companies that were doing they were messaging about this if the company said anything at all it was the marketing department it was not the human resources department give all this money to Abraham Kennedy or BLM or whatever. Um, and they're just there. They're just sort of like these commissars, you know, like the, like the Soviets and the Chinese still do today. They put these uh, commissars in like companies to like make sure they're enforcing the party line. HR sort of became like that. I don't want to say all HR, uh, all people who work HR are like this. Some of them do payroll and like normal stuff. Uh, but a lot of them, you know, are focused on sort of cultural. Uh, <laughs> it's mostly what it, it's like mostly what HR does is uh payroll and what he's calling a normal stuff. <laughs> I just can't even fucking believe this guy. <laughs> oh man. Social engineering. And then like, especially DEI, once you get that, of course, that's ideologically selected to, to have crazy views on race and gender. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that definitely seems like a, an important mechanism that people have missed and, and these talk of the culture wars is how easy it is to uh, do these lawsuits where, you know, lack of evidence doesn't really matter. So you have to kind of prostrate yourself and show that you're ideologically committed to, to egalitarianism. Um, so as far as you mentioned there a little bit like the, the ESG and some of like the, the woke aspects of, of corporations, that's something that's been talked about a lot recently as well, like, you know, BlackRock have all these ESG requirements for companies they work with and uh, these terms like DEI, all this stuff. Is that something that's downstream from civil rights law or is this a case where corporations are kind of um, working by themselves to, to kind of push wokeism or does this tie back to civil rights law as well? Uh, you know, this is sort of a, you know, Vivek talks about this. He, he actually was the first, I mean, I first started hearing about ESG. I didn't know how big of a deal it was until that. No, I think that is, it seems like it's, you know, I haven't done as much research on this. Um, it still seems like its own thing. It seems like there was a sort of just this mindless sort of march towards 
uh, you know, this kind of pushing diversity onto corporations and stuff. It seems to be have scaled back. I mean, it seems like that people are uh, going after it, um, like even like state governments and stuff. And even BlackRock is like, you know, pushed back a bit. But now this one is harder to trace directly to civil rights law. I think that what happened is maybe can be indirectly traced in that like uh you know it sort of became accepted corp like best practices for corporations is to like you know hire more women and minorities and be extra sensitive towards them uh and so like that's okay so the and be extra sensitive towards them there's like there's a lot like lit that lives in that part of the statement in this guy's mind i'm guessing be extra sensitive to them does that mean like don't be like a shitty to the people that your your work that are like uh, different than you is that is that, that? I'm, i don't i don't know he's not going to like really expand on what he means there by be extra sensitive to them standard among these you know uh, big hedge funds and these you know these blackrock and these other uh corporations uh yeah but it, yeah it's it's different i mean it's, it's sort of something new i mean i've heard it's very intrusive from people who have worked in companies um but yeah i've heard from people who work at companies <laughs> get the fuck out of here like I don't work for a company now and like for before I was doing this, I owned a business and we weren't big enough to really need an HR department and like people didn't, people weren't shitty to each other at the company because there was like only eight of us. Right. And we were all kind of friends before that I worked in big organizations and um, yeah, there were HR departments there and there were people there who were shitty. There were people there who were shitty. I never personally had to go to HR, but I know people who didn't, they didn't want to do that. They didn't really have much other choice. They went to their immediate supervisor. The immediate supervisor tried to remedy it, but the immediate supervisor is in the HR department. The immediate supervisor, in some cases, was just another engineer or a, a admin, like a network admin or something like that, who got promoted. That wasn't their job. Like at a big organization like Cisco, like if you're a like a like a systems administration administrator or whatever, your immediate supervisor is probably also another sysadmin who got promoted, and that's great. Like promoting within is good. Um, but then they're, that's what HR is there for is for when the, you know, your, your boss should stick up for you and be like, Hey, we can't work like this together. But at some point that person doesn't have the tools available to them and you need to go to the HR department. This is the, the, the connection here is a little bit uh, more tenuous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think of that and I think of like when, when the Supreme Court got rid of affirmative action that you had universities that were saying that they were still going to try and find ways to enforce it. Um, you know, what kind of barrier does that prevent present to someone that's that's trying to attack this at its root and, and go to civil rights law? If you're going to have now, you have this, it's kind of metastasized into these uh, woke corporations and, and um, you know, university commissaries that are going to enforce it regardless. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, it took a lot, you know, it these, you know, one of the arguments of the book is the, ideas change you know the ideas come and the law comes and it sort of takes a while to transform institutions so it wasn't overnight that every corporation sort of became crazy and obsessed with race and obsessed with sex it was decades like they had to hire these people they had to keep getting sued they had to keep you know changing their practices they weren't focused on civil rights law mostly they were focusing on corporation stuff right like selling whatever opening mega stores or target or whatever or whatever they were doing um and so like the way you undo it is like you know you if you pass the right laws or you have the right uh, court decisions, um, you know, the, the, the workforce is not going to change overnight. Um, you know, what you're going to do is, you know, you're going to change the incentive structure where like, 
oh, they realize HR is maybe not necessary as much. Uh, maybe this corporate uh, DEI program is not as necessary as they thought. Next time they're you know they're laying people off, they don't have to worry about disparate impact as much. You know when when uh, when Elon Musk laid off all those people at Twitter, there was reporting in the news that uh, they wanted you know like HR lawyers or whoever wanted him to look at it, make sure you're not hiring you're firing too many blacks and women because it would be you know it would be racist, sexist under civil rights law. And he is actually being sued for this, I think, um, in California. Um, you know and like so corporations have to worry about this stuff right uh and so the workforce changes over time like the what the workforce what the workforce does and it's really going to be like it's going to have to be a sustained assault because the liberals you know got you know changed the culture through a sustained assault it wasn't like they just passed a law we that the culture war um <clears throat> we fought the culture war in the culture that's how gay marriage got legalized i don't think that uh barack obama and joe biden eventually too late coming out for gay marriage uh, did as much to uh, bring about uh, gay marriages, like let's say the, the television show Will and Grace, or had a court decision that stopped. They like had a you know they got the Supreme Court decision, and then they had lawyers who were filing lawsuits and fighting plaintiffs, and like there were people in HR. Um, and so it's going to depend a lot on like you know people ask me what's the uh, going to be the consequence of the SFFA v Harvard case. Uh, and I say it depends on who wins the presidency and who's appointing the judges next time, because like liberals will read it in a way that says, oh, it's actually doesn't apply that broadly. You can actually get around it. And, you know, conservatives judges are going to be, for example, more sympathetic towards like lawsuits where whites or Asians accuse corporations of discrimination. Right. That could be an actual concern. But it depends on if the judiciary is actually uh, receptive to such such arguments. Um, and so which way it goes, really, it is a political battle. You know, I'm optimistic on this stuff because like it was a one-sided battle for, for so long um it was just liberals were i don't think they were thinking not that they were thinking about civil rights not like every liberal like obama or whatever but like uh you know like the people who were thinking about this stuff were on the left so there was a civil rights sort of plaintiff's bar there were you know leftist race activists and now you have like i think we've made it i've made it and other people have talked about this have made it so that like conservatives understand you know that's like civil rights law is like a problem right that that was that acknowledgement wasn't there like 10 years ago like diverse even diversity um was seen as like sort of nonpartisan, like a conservative like a republican or a democrat wait what what, he, wait, what, but he, what does he mean uh, 10 years ago diversity like 10 years ago if you remember 10 years ago uh gamergate was 10 years ago and that was a huge cultural moment diversity that's fine right there was no pushback now it's like such a polarized word it's like diversity is just okay it's something that liberals do and something that liberals like it's something conservatives don't like right um or you know whatever diversity you know we know what it means like we get it we get it means like abolishing standardized tests you know trainings about white privilege uh and so on and so that's the reason to be optimistic it's like even if you know it's like you had no, you had it was like not even a battle before and now you have like both sides the issue becomes polarized uh that means things are probably not going to be as bad as they used to be yeah i i actually i am kind of surprised by the the progress that's been made in that regard i mean the, the first time i heard of of caldwell's book and that i thought you know that sounds like um challenging civil rights law like that's that's something you'll never yeah, uh, win with with conservatives, right? It's 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 a it's a bridge too far. But now you have these guys like I think Vivek is, is has become very critical of, of of the Civil Rights Act. I don't know if he wants to abolish it or what his specific policies are, but he's certainly spoken critically of it. So it it does seem like something that's kind of ent entering the mainstream and in, in conservatism increasingly. 
Yeah, you're right. No, you're absolutely right on that. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it, it was crazy because you say civil rights are bad. Yeah, 10 years ago. I mean, I don't think, you know, your audience, you're young. How old are you? You're like 25, right? 28, yeah. Okay. All right. You're still, you're still, you're still pretty young. Uh, you're, you're old enough, I guess, to remember around like 2010, if you were paying attention to politics then. Um, yeah. I mean, to say like civil rights were bad or like more minority representation was bad. That was sort of. But wait a minute. No, no, there were people, there were people, it was few, a very few, but there were people in the Republican party that every time, um, I forget what it was, came up was it civil, civil rights, something about civil rights act had to be like re re ratified or something. I forget what it was. Um, but they were voting against it famously Ron and Rand Paul. It is crazy. I think that like the great awakening, I mean, I think woke people up because, you know, ironically, because it would be like people saw that they were nuts. Like it was like every New York Times article, Washington Post article was just like racism, sexism, structural discrimination. Like, you know, people like on the, you know, on like the alt-right people and stuff used to pay attention to this stuff. Um, and, you know, they saw it and it was just like, it wasn't so obvious that like everyone recognized it. But then like it became like by like 2015 or 2016, you know, like rise of Trump and even before that, it was like anyone who reads a newspaper, anyone who watches a TV show, right? Like can see that like this stuff is just, you know, I mean, pe people with kids in the education system, they could just see this stuff was being shoved down people's throats. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it inspired a backlash. I mean, it wasn't going to be, you know, I, I mean, liberals are probably more to thank for this than like conservatives who've argued against wokeness and civil rights because like nobody would really be listening to me um, on this stuff probably if like liberals had proved themselves to be so crazy on um, these identity issues. And because of that, you know, I, I think that's that the backlash is sort of explains what we're seeing on the right. Yeah. Um, one thing that I found very interesting in the book actually was when you went over kind of the history of how conservatives treated civil rights. And, you know, something I learned that I wasn't aware of was actually how much worse Nixon made it in, in terms of accelerating it. You know, I've always had kind of a soft spot for, for Nixon yeah. as, a, as U.S. presidents go. I mean, uh, I, I actually do, too. And Nixon, the EPA, uh, normalization of relations with China. I mean, he was a scumbag, but he did some like the EPA and the normalization of our relationship with uh, China. Those were huge. Yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you make a, a pretty good case that he, he really accelerated this, uh, yeah. which is interesting because I always associate him as like he ran on this wave of like silent majority. And, you know, I guess he had a mandate to push back on this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, w what explains him making it so much worse? Is it just straight voter betrayal? Is it, you know? Yeah, his, I mean, he's sort of. I mean, he's sort of, you know, I get at this a little bit in the book. He's sort of not his fault. I know, you know, you listen to like Nixon, the Nixon tapes and stuff, you know, he was clearly not woke, right? <laughs> he wasn't built liberal on, you know, race issues and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of these times he didn't, he didn't even, there's no evidence I could find that on a lot of these important things, he even knew what was going on. He was focused mostly on foreign policy and then he was focused on domestic policy too. And you have to think in 19, uh, you know, 69, 77. Well, what other kind of policy is there besides foreign and domestic policy? I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to like talk about those two things, everything kind of fall unless like foreign and domestic. I mean, even the moon would be foreign policy, right? of media right there is no fox news there's no new york post there's no twitter you know there obviously um and there's just like the big newspapers and the big media right and he's he's you know appointing somebody to be uh secretary of labor and all these other positions and they're just doing stuff and like not everything comes here. <laughs> he appointed a secretary of labor and uh, all these other positions in his cabinet and they were like all doing stuff <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? yes
that they're doing stuff. Thanks, Rich. President's attention. A lot of stuff doesn't even come to his attention. Um, the t- he when he signs the Education Act, um, which which uh, uh, which uh, Title IX was a part of, uh, Education Amendments Act, nice to He doesn't mention it in the signing ceremony. Did he know it was in there? Um, you know, who knows? Um, you know, it was being pushed by sort of these feminists in Congress who were like, "Don't give it too much attention because it'll there'll be there'll be a backlash if people see what." And this was the original Title IX. It wasn't like the crazy it became the craziness it became later. Uh, the way it was interpreted, um, you know, there's no evidence it's I could find. Like a Title IX originalist, whatever the fuck that means. Like this is amazing. Like listening to this guy, he's like, "Oh, you know, Nixon appointed these people and they did stuff, and then there were crazy feminists. Oh, it's not as bad as it was now, but they, it was the original Title IX back when it was good." I, this guy, like, what the fuck? Why, why, how can you take this guy seriously? He, like, doesn't really say anything. It's just, like, sort of, like, pining away for the past, but then he can't even tell you what happened in the past. I talked to a scholar of the time, too, who said the same thing, that Nixon knew about um, the expansion of affirmative action into all government contracting. He was, he knew about the, um, uh, construction thing. He wanted to go after the construction. He wanted to go after the labor unions and split the civil rights people and the labor people among the Democrats. So they did affirmative action in, in uh, uh, construction. But then the uh, Department of Labor does it for all federal contractors. There's no evidence he knew about that either. The Griggs decision in 71, that was the Supreme Court, right? Obviously, it wasn't Nixon himself. So yeah, I mean, he did, you know, his administration um, did do a lot of this bad stuff, but it's like, it's not even like, I think if anyone else was president, his administration did this bad stuff, but eh, it wasn't his fault. <laughs> he didn't know about it. He was busy illegally wiretapping people. Give the guy a break. He was president or something like he probably like wouldn't have even known um, like what they were doing under him. I mean, it was really just like nobody was bringing this other attention. People just saw civil rights as this nice thing that like good people did. And like the people you would appoint would all be sort of part of this elite. There was no conservative. I said no conservative media. There's also no conservative. There's no heritage foundation. There's no conservative elite of like people who are ideologically right wing who are there to staff. This changes by the Reagan administration. Now the Reagan administration, right? You have like conservatives and sort of moderates and liberals. Today, a Republican administration is basically going to be all different flavors of right-wing people. You're not going to have, you know, Trump is good. You know, for the most part, it's not going to really appoint any any liberals, even though he might appoint people who suck in other ways. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Nixon is a fascinating case. I, I don't hold him that personally responsible, but yeah, his administration was when a lot of this really bad stuff happened. And you mentioned Reagan. You also talk about him in the book, kind of in contrast to Nixon, that he actually did push back on this in, in many ways. So, what was the? Why was he effective in, in challenging civil rights law compared to other presidents? Yeah, it was sort of the development of, like I said, there's more. There's more sort of a conservative media a little bit. You know, you have the early days of this. Uh, you have basically conservative organizations. You have the conservative legal. That people should read. There's a book I cite a bit in the in my book called uh, "The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement" by Steve Tellis. Uh, it's very fascinating. It sort of tells you. The I means like the Federalist stuff. Society, probably. Uh, and Nixon is ideologically conservative too. He's more ideologically conservative than Nixon. Nixon is sort of like, you know, I think there was like it was just like oh, helping blacks is just sort of the right thing to do. He had this sort of idea. Um, Reagan, I mean, you know, like it was like after this was after years of sort of seeing the craziness of civil rights and how far it had gone. And so Reagan comes in. You know, he wants to repeal affirmative action government contracting. Uh, he wants to do some good stuff on voting rights. Um, he appoints Clarence Thomas to head the EEOC, you know, Clarence, Clarence Thomas, you know, they do all, they, you know, they improve, they improve that, uh, they improve that. Um, he, Clarence, uh, conflict of interest, Thomas. 
you know, there's something he vetoes the Civil Rights Restoration Act. And I won't go into the details of that. It's a little complicated, but it's a big deal. It's actually a very, very big deal. His, uh, his veto, is, uh, people can read about it in the book, his veto is overruled uh, by uh, Congress, two thirds in each house, right? And, and so like, you know, he did, he tried to do some things, but it was very limited because like the Democrats were 100% in favor of expanding civil rights law and Republicans were like, you know, close to 50-50 or something like that. And with like half of Republicans and all Democrats, you can overcome like any uh, presidential veto. So he was really threatened by Congress. Uh, and, you know, and so it's like you go to like. Um, that's good, actually, when the executive can is if they do if they can be threatened by congress when congress can pass laws and then the executive attempts to veto them and congress goes oh you actually know that's good that's, that's how it's uh, that's how it's supposed to work it's law and then like reagan like they're half and half and then this is the hw wish but over time like the party becomes more conservative the parties become more sorted and now like you know that would if reagan was president today tried to get rid of affirmative action or copyright imagine like house republicans like saying no no you can't do that that's the worst thing in the world of course that would that would not happen they would go along with it and they defend it and liberals would go crazy uh so yeah i mean it's a general you know it's a good this book is sort of a good way to learn about just like american politics more generally because it's not just civil rights law it's like a lot of things are like this where the parties have become more divided over time yeah yeah no it's interesting as as history as well like i said i didn't uh I wasn't aware of, of the effect of, of Reagan and Nixon, the presidencies on it. Um, you mentioned the conservative legal movement. That brings me on to another question. Are you surprised that it's, I mean, it seems like Stephen Miller is the only person from the Trump presidency or even like the, the Trump movement that has tried to translate that MAGA movement, populist energy into some kind of legal strategy. Um, I forget the name of his legal firm, America First, something. Yeah, I think it's um, America First Legal. Yeah, but he's actually, you know, he's actually trying to pursue this in, in a legal manner. Are you surprised that there's been so little kind of grassroots support for that? Uh, I don't know if there. I mean, I don't know if there has been that little. Like, I hear about lawsuits making their way through the uh, judiciary. I hear about some positive sort of. I've heard about some lawsuits make their way through the judiciary. Everybody, did you know that? Findings. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's a little or it's a lot. Um, I just know, I know that there's some and they make their way through the judiciary. I don't know. Fucking <laughs> God. Like, this guy wrote a book. I think it's like it's a problem conservatives always had of like having enough activists. They just have fewer than liberals. Um, I think like in the world of like who the next government employ, like uh, who's going to get appointed in the next Republican administration, I think people are going to be you know more solid on the civil rights stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think that like yeah, it's gonna you know it's gonna it's gonna take a lot. I mean, it's gonna take like the the active. It's gonna take activists. It's gonna take lawyers. I don't know if you need that many activists i think you just need like a few who are like very strategic and you need the judges to rule uh your your right away um so yeah i don't know i but it's i think it's you know i'm not under the pressure that there's like not that much activity i think there's there's a good bit of activity and you know we'll see what happens with it yeah well like i said at, at the end of the book you do get into ways forward and and you kind of present a, an optimistic picture of of what the u.s could look like if it if it went in the direction of a, a meritocratic society uh Actually, one thing I've actually referenced a lot before is the substack you wrote about conservatives versus liberals, how liberals read, conservatives watch TV. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's it, it does actually explain a lot about the dynamic. I don't know if that's true. I don't think anybody watches TV anymore, except like older people. <laughs> Why things are always moving leftward, and you know the conservative movement doesn't really have uh, a brain to kind of direct it towards solid policy objectives. Um, but I think you may have even mentioned these examples when you wrote that, like the, the gun rights movement and the pro-life movement have actually been quite successful uh, in yeah. contrast to the rest of conservatism. So I guess the question is, um, you know, even if you don't identify as a conservative, like it's, it's going to be the conservative movement um, that is going to be the force pushing back against uh, wokeism or civil rights law. How do you kind of overcome those limitations where you have an audience that's much more interested in, in the drama in the personal, the personality politics, the Infowars style stuff? How do you translate that into real activism or real policy goals um, that could translate some of the things you're talking about in the book? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think you do take sort of inspiration or uh, guidance from these movements that have succeeded, right? I mean, the, you know, the, uh, the uh, you know the gun rights movement and the pro life movement they're not very online. You go on Twitter, there's not like tons of like uh, pro life content or like tons of like you know uh, 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 you know content about how gun. I mean, there's like stupid like you know oh, look at my guns are so cool, but there's no like a lot of like policy focused on Second Amendment policy. And they you know like even though the conservatives are sort of a TV watching movement who doesn't who don't pay a lot of attention to policy, you can't just sort of capture it and say okay we're all Republicans now. We're all pro-life. We're all pro-gun. Uh, taxes is another one. We're all for cutting taxes, right? Like no Republican wants to raise income tax. And so, like you know, the the people who care about civil rights, who care about wokeness, it's just about that. It's just having it's just having these sort of uh, ideas, like being against disparate impact, being against affirmative action, uh, being against you know Title IX craziness. Just making that just like sort of standard, like and then like you know whatever they're running for speaker of the house now or whatever. Like every guy, like every guy who's running for speaker of the house is like the same on gun rights. They're all you know basically Second Amendment absolutists. They'll never, they'll never. <clears> that's because they're uh, Republicans in the house thing that's any gun control thing like even gerrymandering sort of sir that's because probably because of gerrymandering there's a downstream effect of gerrymandering crowd checks or whatever nobody who's going to be republican speaker of the house is going to do that um and so like it, you know it's like it has to be it's like the left is sort of uh you know it sort of moves it's sort of like there's this logic of like liberalism and wokeness and like you know equality and it's sort of like there's a dialectic and they sort of they move together but like conservatives is just like I would love We're to, gonna, but like, sir, what, 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 when you said dialectic, what does that mean? But check a box and like, okay, everyone is going to be, you know, anti-gun control now. And then everyone just does that. And that's sort of the, you know, it, that can be very, yeah, it's gerrymandering it's because <clears throat> that's there, there's districts that are just so safe that it, it pushes in the house. It pushes people farther apart, like pushes the parties farther apart. That's because of gerrymandering. Um, it happens on both the left and the right, to the extent that there's a left. It happens to Democrats and Republicans. The Senate tends to have a, a few more moderates, like per, you know, per like 100 or whatever, because there are states that are 50-50, basically. And so <clears throat> during the general election and as, as, um, as uh, legislators, some of the people, not a lot, but some, more, you know, per you know, percent or whatever will tack to the middle or tack to more moderate positions when they govern. Amazingly effective. I mean, I don't think people like young people don't know the extent of it. I have a, 
essay on Substack conservatives win all the time. If you know your producer, whoever's watching, could share that. Um, it really shows like the gun, the gun stuff, especially amazing. Like uh, you know, like the most liberal state um, now is like more conservative than like the most conservative states like 30 years ago. Wait, like, what? If you could own or carry a gun, um, and so yeah, I mean there is you know there is hope for people who want to see sort of change in a right wing direction. Okay, um, your mic just got a little bit quieter there. I don't know if you moved it. I moved um, back. I just moved back a little. No, bit. please okay. continue to move back. Um, yeah, so I was actually going to ask. So, uh, I wonder if the, oh, this host here, if this Keith character, is uh, trolling Richard a little bit. Be like, could you get a little, get a little closer to your camera? Kind of a big question, but seeing as we're talking about solutions, right? Let's say, uh, let's say Trump gets elected, or let's say Vivek gets elected, and he calls you up and he says, Richard. Uh, we have to solve wokeism. We have four years. I'm going to give you carte blanche. You can you can suggest the policies. I'll, I'll implement them as best I can. Uh, what are you going to do in those four years? What's the what's the roadmap to dismantle wokeism? Okay, so there's these things that you could sort of just do on day one, just within the administration, and there's things you could do down the line, right? Uh, so I have a, you know, a chapter on this, but like the you know the, the first you know you uh, executive order one one two four six as affirmative action and contracting that can be done right away. Vivek has actually promised to do that first day in office. I think uh, I think uh, Vivek is not even going to crack five percent. You'd see DeSantis or Trump if they got any pressure, they would also sort of rework that. Um, you can, uh, you know, you just keep appointing the right conservative judges. They're going to have to rule on disparate impact and stuff like that. Just stack the federal judiciary during the uh, during the, uh, uh, Trump term. I mean, McConnell did a good job of just moving judges along very, very fast and just getting them there and just having as many as possible. I think you, you keep doing that, um, you know, and then people like me tell them about, you know, what Title VI and what Title VII, Title IX, uh, disparate impact, what to do on all these things. Um, you can you can get rid of the disparate impact standard within government, um, and so that could be that could be something you could do, uh, you know, legis legislatively. Um, if you can, you know, if you can get the uh, you can get the laws passed, you really you can go after like uh, you can first just go after like ban race in government, you know, decision making. You can just go straight. There was a, there was talk of doing there was something like a, they called it. I think the uh, I think they might have called it like the Civil Rights Act of 1995 or 1996 or something like that. There was talk of congressional Republicans doing this um, in the mid 1990s. It never went anywhere, but they were you know they were talking about banning government. Um, I talk about the history of that of that in the book too. Uh, you know, there could be the time could be ripe for doing that again. Um, or at least try and get you to have a better chance this time. Um, and then like a lot of the incentives of civil rights law, uh, that, you know, like uh, the harassment law, like I think you gotta really have the, these decisions that just sort of scale that back, uh, bring the first amendment into it. You know, we brought the first amendment into sort of political speech and like Citizens United. You need some cases like that for civil rights and harassment law. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot you can do. None of it is, sexy or like you know like very fun i mean if anybody knows sexy it's this guy something like that uh but yeah i mean i think this stuff would would have a major impact on the culture is that something then that you know uh, let's say you you have elites that are that are concerned about the direction things are going in and they're, they're worried about the excesses of, of wokeism maybe how it's going to impact their their business dealings i think we're seeing a lot of examples like that now with all the lawsuits Elon musk is undergoing um is that something where say you know elite pushback could be directed against if there was like a, an nra of anti-wokeism um if there was some kind of ngo that was i mean there is sort of an nra there are a couple groups that would i would call the nra of anti-wokeism well the first one that comes to mind would be like moms for liberty right 
that would be sort of the NRA of anti-wokeism. They're not as big as the NRA, but they're it's the sort of the same um, model in some ways, different in other ways because times change. And the NRA is actually uh, less impactful than it once was. Antlin civil rights law is is that somewhere where there's an opening in, in the conservative movement? Yeah, I mean, if there was like an NRA for a civil rights law, I mean, that would be that would be great, right? I mean, like yeah, the gun people and the. Uh, uh, you know, the gun people and the pro-life, I mean, they really care. They do organize. It's like different from what me or you do, right? You do pot, you do, uh, you, you know, you stream, I, you know, I write, I wrote this book. Um, there's a lot of, you know, not a lot of people who do exactly, you know, who wrote like a book like this, but there's a lot of people who at least write in like the topic. Yeah, I would, I would agree with him that there's probably nobody else that wrote a book like his. Really. Um, there's not a lot of people and like the gun people like don't produce a lot of like big essays, right? But they do produce a lot of activists. And so it's interesting how like some causes produce a lot of people. Oh, there's, chatter, there's, there's people, and there's people who and I'm, you know, I'm just using the word kind of loosely. There are intellectuals, intellectual types who talk about gun rights. Yeah, there are. He's, he's probably just wrong here. Some movements, a lot of people who uh, go into politics, but the people who go into politics end up having the biggest influence. The, the chatter stuff is sort of maybe not as important as people think, unless it inspires people to go out and do the do the activism. Um, and so you're right. I mean, I'm not the person who I like writing. You know, I don't like political lobbying or whatever. Um, but yeah, hopefully, someone listening to me, uh, you know, does take up these ideas and tries to enact them in policy. Uh, and you were talking about like in the, the 1990s, the fact that you had like the bell curve and this kind of work being given more of a, a fair hearing. So in terms of how if you did away with the the legal, uh, the legal barriers, the legal things that are, that are pushing this force of wokeism forward, um, you know, it's maybe it's hard to foresee exactly how it would shake out in, in the resultant culture war. Um, and it certainly empowers some people in a way it hadn't before. Um, so do you just kind of have a faith that, you know, the, the ideas of meritocracy will win out if. if <clears throat> so the problem with meritocracy, and I feel like this is keenly stating the obvious is who decides who has merit and by what, <laughs> what do, what do they even mean when they say merit? Barriers imposed by civil rights law. You think that that would result in, in a, a big culture shift once there's more of a fair playing field? Yeah, I mean, look, already, like, with civil rights law, like, it's not like there's, like, so many black engineers or heart surgeons or whatever, right? It's still, like, white sedations are dominating. Why? Because there's market incentives where people want the best employee, right? Um, it's just in, in business, you know, people who can execute succeed. And so it's not, you know, government's putting its thumb on the scale and it's introducing artificial diversity and all this stuff. But even, like, with the civil rights regime, as crazy as it is, we don't have parity. So, like, imagine a world where we don't have the civil rights regime, where you can give any test you want where you're not going to be sued for disparate impact um you're not going to be people giving the test this guy yeah uh, somebody in chat was saying earlier that this guy's never had a job i don't think this guy's ever been hired by anybody i think he got hired by killette but that's different right uh, i think the if you try to get hired by killette they just want to see whether or not you have phrenology calipers <clears throat> um i don't think i've ever taken any standardized tests for any of the jobs i've ever had I think I was asked to solve certain problems in job interviews, but it was more like, it wasn't like, do you get the right answer? It's like, how do you solve this type of problem? It was more like kind of casual, if that makes sense. You know, told you're too white or too male and the government's going to come after you. 
Yeah, I mean, merit, you know, I, th I do think we have like uh, a meritocratic society to a large extent, despite the distortions of it. I mean, the fact that we don't have racial equality in every field shows that we, we have a meritocratic society. Merit still matters. You discriminate against Asians, they still turn out, you know, they still turn out to high socioeconomic status. Uh, and so civil rights law, well, you know, rolling back in it will just push us even more in that direction. So, yeah, I think it will make a big difference. All right. Now, uh, one thing I noticed a lot of people actually that that were uh, disagreeing pointed out is they said, well, if wokeism is about civil rights law, why is Europe so woke, right? Um, you know, Britain and, and Sweden and Germany, these countries, you get, you get just as many examples of, of these crazy SJWs and, and woke policies and so on. Um, do you see that as, as kind of an offshoot of, of civil rights law created this culture of, of wokeism in the US? And then, of course, um, you know, just with the, the media and cultural power and so on, that kind of necessarily translates to Europe. So people make this argument, but like Europe has speech codes. So it's like they have law, they have a law, they have woke law, right? They have law where like, if you say the wrong thing, I just posted on Twitter the other day, uh, Ellen Soral, is that his name? He got, uh, went to jail for 60 days for calling a woman a fat lesbian in Switzerland. I mean, it's crazy sort of how restrictive. So like Europe has laws they're different kinds of laws um but they are laws sort of pushing sort of a lot of the same ideas like it's illegal to i'm sure it's illegal to talk about race differences probably in you know, an explicit way even i've heard it's is can be iffy to talk about sex differences i don't know if anyone actually gets prosecuted for it but i know like at least by the letter of the law like denmark says you know you can't you can't you know say men or women are different or something like that uh so they you know they or something like that they it's, the law says you know or something like that that's what the law says actually in denmark it's like um hear ye hear ye something like <laughs> and they, maybe i should write about this because, because whereas something like say, but like yeah they have laws too they're just different um and the, and but the, i think their corporate environment is actually less woke from what i hear like i was talking to eric kaufman well there's less there's there's okay so like in most places in europe the Euro unions are a lot stronger like in germany for example um the board of directors of any company over a certain size has to have uh, labor representatives on the board of directors and that that sort of that the thumb gets on the scale in that way in those societies. It's just a different method for get, for the thumb of like the average person being on the scale. It's it's a shocker. Different societies are organized in slightly different ways. I so the UK for a really long time, and I ask him like, in your corporation, like in your, uh, your universities, like if something happens in the news with refugees or sexual assault, there's some liberal cause. Like, does the administration send everyone an email saying like the university takes the liberal position? Because that's what they do in America. If you're at UCLA or Stanford or Harvard, you're getting tons of emails. Oh, refugees are in the news. We all stand with refugees. Oh, sexual assault. Oh, BLM. And he's like, no. Sexual assault. We are against that. You get an email, hey, uh, everybody, there's a sexual assault happening on campus. And, um, you know, maybe some of you are into that, but I think um, I think it's bad. I don't know. Universities like don't do that in the UK. Now the UK, the police will not come to your door and you know uh, arrest you if you say anything racist, right? Uh, but then the university doesn't do that. So like, are they mo more woke than the US or are they less woke? In certain ways, they're more woke. In certain ways, they're less woke. But they're woke or non-woke in ways like sort of consistent with the law, right? Uh, so I, 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 you know, I take that Again, as sort shocker. Of societies organize themselves in slightly different ways, or sometimes dramatically different ways. I am stunned that you know the law does matter a lot um in how institutions end up behaving 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a role. I guess it's just uh, like what, what's the kind of causal. It doesn't seem like there's necessarily like a causal relationship where if you have harsh speech laws that that's going to like create this huge base of like activated left wing activists that then want to police speech. Yeah, um, they have that yeah. in France, right? They have these people who like keep suing, you know, the same people over and over, and you know, having them pay fines, right? So yeah, the law we don't have that in the U.S. because you know we don't have speech codes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to read one of the, the super chats that came in. If people want to send super chats, the, the link is pinned. Um, I also have the mods post and the, the link to the book in the chat if you want to buy it. I think it's it's bestseller in, in a few categories on, on Amazon right now. So well done on that. Um, let's see how let's see if you, could, you guys can move it up the charts. It, the Amazon uh, updates quickly. So it's 17,000 in books. I want okay, to see if let's get up yeah, to how much the Zoom or live streams matter. <laughs> uh, Serena JB just said, thanks for everything you do, Keith. Uh, Patreon sent, uh, you kind of asked like three questions in one here, but I'll narrow it down. He said, Richard, what are your thoughts on wokeness's origin in relation to civilizational cycles like uh, Turchin or Spengler explained um, or spiteful mutant and this genetics theory like related to the work of Ed Dutton? So that's, there's a kind of a few questions in one, but do you see this as like the broader, um, you know, civilizational cycle, late stage civilization? Um, I think, I think, I know, I think Turchin is a charlatan. I, I don't buy Turchin's theories at all. People can uh, search by Twitter. They can search for Turchin. I, I think it's, it's sort of, it's uh, silly. And I've, I've explained why there, I mean, there's no sign. You look at the graph of like human uh, uh, development. It's like, you know, the, the global GDP, it's like nothing, nothing, nothing. You see this 1700 goes like this, right? Um, there's no, there's no cycle. Like we, you know, there, you know, there, there are cycles, obviously like, but like G- uh, G- GD- GDP is like an arbitrary, like measurement that the people in power decided they were going to use to measure society in a specific way. It's useful in some ways and not useful in other ways. Fall, but like the idea that this guy has like you know a theory that can sort of explain Rome and explain America and like what caused Rome to fall is going to be the same thing that caused America to fall, even though it's been like you know two, it's like we're a completely you know different uh, you know civilization with thousands of years of you know economic and technological development. That stuff is you know. But that's, that's not bad. talking about GDP. I think that in. I don't know the work he's talking about, but I would assume that he's talking about empire and uh, empires do tend to fall for the same reason. They spread too thin, essentially. I don't think people should take church in uh, seriously. Uh, spiteful mutant theory. I haven't, I haven't really read. I, so I've read this essay called bio-Leninism. Is it similar to that idea? It, it's a little bit different. I, I, the bio-Leninist is this kind of NRX idea that elites like try and combine as many minority groups as possible that have resentment for, for the majority. The Spiteful Mutant thing, that's Ed Dutton and um, I forget the guy's first name. Is it Tyrone Woodley? Um, but it's basically the argument that, you know, because we're past uh, harsh Darwinian selection with industrial the Industrial Revolution and very low childhood mortality, that uh, there's an excess of, of mutational loads uh, in people that... Yeah. that Ooh, so eugenics. It's eugenics. There's an excess in mutational load in people because, you know, the wrong, the wrong people are able to reproduce. That's... I hope I'm not being too... Um, I hope I'm not coming in too bad of faith there selected out due to like early infant death before and these people um people with high mutational load tend to be more mentally unstable 
yeah. they're drawn more to to uh, you know far left ideas. We have studies on that, that like the correlation between mental instability and, and narcissism and left wing authoritarianism. Um, so what? it is kind of an argument about like a, a cyclical civilizational theory again, and that you know almost like if you get too comfortable and and there's too oh biased, it's that so fucking uh, what is it hard times make strong men strong men make good times good times make weak men weak men make hard time that they're doing that they're doing that one now right that you're going to get like a large mass of people that are that are drawn yeah. to these dysfunctional ideas yeah yeah so th this is just yeah this sounds like this gen x causes sort of wokeness and liberalism and you know i think the idea that uh yeah harmful eugenics yeah yeah this is you now and now it's just straight up eugenics dysgenics they mean the wrong kind of people having kids that means that like if you're poor your kids don't die from you being poor or if your kid is born with uh, some sort of illness they don't just croak right after they're born because we have uh high qu high quality modern medicine that's not necessarily available to everybody here in the united states but genetics is going ongoing i think is uh true um you know almost certainly true uh no matter what rate is happening uh like could that explain liberalism and wokeness i don't know i mean like you know like higher income people are actually more woke than lower income people so maybe the backlash to wokeness is sort of the spiteful mutants right a lot of you know these, these sort of it's like you know these a lot of poor rural whites left behind areas you know like they're you know they're, they're they have terrible you know they have high obesity they have terrible uh test scores um and a lot of those are some of the most anti-woke people there are just because they're sort of tribal like wokeness is like sort of only there for you know it's only accepted by like you know among whites among like really like sort of more well-to-do whites um, what? No, no, no. This is come on. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's dysgenics, but like to say that like this explains liberalism. Well, maybe in certain cases, maybe some mentally ill. He's like there is are is dysgenics um, become leftists. Like maybe women, right? It maybe depends on the demographic. Oh, no, Appalachia, and you're like you know <laughs> poor and like sort of screwed up. You're not going to be in your high testosterone. Maybe you won't become a woke. Maybe if you're a woman, if you're a woman in like an urban area and you've got like all these mental problems, that is like something that appeals to you. But then it sounds to me like the backlash to wokeness can also be sort of explained because it's often the most quote unquote backwards uh, people and groups that are more supposed to this stuff. All right. Well, I can't listen to a moment more of this. I don't think anybody here wants to listen to a moment more of this. Um, I don't like this. I, I th th this like literally got into eugenics. They were talking about essentially like how like infant, like young, young uh, child mortality rate went down. And that caused wokeness. So that, and they, the implication there is that if more uh, disadvantaged people's kids died, we would have less wokeness. Um, yuck, yuck, fucking yuck. Uh, we're gonna kind of keep an eye on um, this creator, this, this interviewer here that we watched. This interviewer's name. Um, I said it at the beginning, but this is Keith Woods. I've subscribed to the channel here on our uh, YouTube channel where we uh, use for streaming. Um, so we'll kind of keep an eye on this guy. I'd like to go on his show, actually. Um, I wonder wonder how that would go. Um, so podcast listeners, live viewers, help me get more popular so I can get on these shows because I feel like I, feel like I have something to say. I have something to say about this. Uh, Richard Hanania is frightening. Um, <clears throat> We're hesitant around here to talk about the way people look, but it's a little hard with him, uh, not because of how he looks, but because he runs around Twitter calling people ugly. Um, and 
I don't do that. I don't run around Twitter calling people ugly. I'm getting older. I don't look as good as I used to look. And um, I don't think whether or not I find someone attractive is a particularly useful metric um, for deciding anything other than whether or not I'd like to date them, I suppose. Um, so yeah, but this guy's frightening. He wrote for white supremacist publications under a pseudonym. And when that was found out, he went more mask off and started talking about like the, a lot of the stuff he was talking about in this started railing against the civil rights movement and whatnot. Um, there are problems in our society, society, systemic problems. There are problems that, uh, uh, men face more than women. There's no problem with any of that stuff, but this guy's solutions and just even like bringing up the idea that, that the dysgenics is part of the problem. It's that's eugenics shit. That's just, that's just dysgenics is the opposite of eugenics. It's where essentially we let too many people live too many of the wrong people live. That's sort of what dysgenics means. It's probably not the di dictionary definition, but I, I don't believe I am wrong there. So with that, I'm going to let you uh, podcast listeners over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, go. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a year in review next week on this show. Uh, but for maybe people who don't catch that, I did want to thank everybody. We've seen pretty big growth in this show yet again this year on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sometimes we even chart in our category. And that's pretty fucking cool because me and HK are just uh, polemicists and shit talkers. And former new atheists. So thanks, everybody. You can support this project by going to echoplexmedia.com, click the support tab, or go directly to eplex.store or patreon.com slash echoplex. Sign up for $5 level. You get all of our podcast recordings in their entirety, including the post game. You get both the audio and video of that, and you get that a day earlier than the podcast comes out on the podcatchers. Also, there's cool merch in our merch shop, like this tinfoil hat I'm wearing. That's at eplex.store. Uh, thanks, everybody. And as always, shout out to the chat room. See everyone who's hanging out live in the post game. I got to change the color of the lights in these room, this room, got to go to the bathroom and I really got to change the content of my beverage after what we just watched. I don't have time for a shower, but that would be good as well. Uh, as always to end this and to end the intellectual dollar tree is boomers by Periscope. We may uh, start thinking about new theme songs uh, in 2024. See everybody on the flip side.
Echoplex has a 24-hour stream? That's right. Check out our 24-7 music stream at echoplexmedia.com live or at eplex.xyz. Our huge self-submitted local music library plays the best tunes the Bay Area has to offer, adding commercial-free, well, except for ours, and even by request. Check out the player on echoplexmedia.com or at eplex.xyz. Bookmark it and enjoy it all day. Echoplex is very supportive of our local music scene, and we hope you enjoy the soundtrack they've so graciously sent in for us to play on our network. If you like who you hear, please go check them out. The names of the artists are displayed on the player at echoplexmedia.com and at eplex.xyz.